Knock me down and steal my teeth. The Jewels of the Trade podcast. Encouraging professionals with industry inspiration, gemology, and more. Thank you for listening to the Jewels of the Trade podcast. I'm Jordan. I'm Hunter. And today we're talking about Savorite Garnet, the rich green grossular garnet often compared to emerald. Savorite is more rare than emerald. It's more durable, even suitable for everyday wear, and more affordable than emerald. Jordan, do you remember the first time you saw Savorite? I remember the first piece of Savorite jewelry I ever saw. It was a bracelet. I want to say I didn't know much about Savorite until I did my GIA courses, which is a shame, really. The moment that I fell in love with Savorite was when I saw it on a customer's hand. I was working in retail at the time, and she had actually bought it at another store. She was wearing this like beautiful oval Savorite on her wedding finger, and she was so proud of it, and she was showing it off to me. And I remember thinking like, Damn, I wish I had been the one to sell that to her. But it was so spectacular. Like I had to learn more and I ended up seeking it out at trade shows. I have a bit of a love affair with Garnet. And the more that I've seen, the more that I've loved it. I didn't actually think much about Savorite until I started learning about it. And the history behind it is pretty fascinating. Not just that, it's a colored stone that's durable enough to be worn in a ring, even an everyday piece like an engagement ring. So it's kind of got a little bit of everything, an exotic history, beauty, wearability, and really, above all, rarity. Today, we're going to be talking to Bruce Bridges, whose father actually discovered Savorite. Bruce owns multiple Savorite mines in Kenya. You may have heard of Bridges' Savorite or seen them at shows, and he is truly an expert on the subject. We're so very excited to talk to him. Today, I'm interviewing Bruce Bridges, who is not only the owner of Bridges Savorite, but is the son of Campbell Bridges, who actually discovered Savorite in the early 1960s. Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? Where are you recording from? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you very much for having me. I am actually in Arizona right now, so in the U.S., not too far away. I'm so jealous. I wish I was in Arizona. It's one of my favorite states. You guys have really crisp air there, and I swear when I go, I have no allergies and no inflammation. It's like magic. It is quite pleasant out here usually, but I have to say it's a wee bit cold and uh, rainy for my liking right now. I guess that's all relative at the end of the day. Sure, sure. (laughs) Well, it sounds ideal to me. Well, I'm glad that you're here on the podcast with us. Today, we're talking about Savorite, which is such an entrancing gem. And it has enthralled so many people in this industry. So I'm very excited to be talking about its history and allure with you today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and how you got into the business and what Savorite is? I was pretty much born in the industry. I'm third generation. My family's been in uh, gems and minerals in Africa for over three generations. My father is indeed the man that discovered Savorite and also the first person to bring Tanzanite for identification to the United States and was Tiffany & Company's consultant on Tanzanite during its discovery years. So that is my legacy. And with all of that being said, I, I certainly wouldn't say even as I mentioned I'm third generation. It wasn't something that my father said you must do, that I had to take over the mines and I had to take over the gem industry when I came of age. But he really never pressured my sister and I. I have one older sister and he never pressured us to really come in the industry. I would say he involved us from a very, very early age. I mean, 
my earliest memories are at the mine. And if you look at old family photos, I'm a babe in arms at the mine. And I mean, I pretty much learned to ride a bike and do everything that a kid would during their evolution and development at the mine. Wow. But that was just a way of for us, really. It wasn't something that my father said, well, this is what you're going to have to do when you get older. So he certainly involved us with every aspect of the industry. And I mean, I started cutting at four years old, just involved us in everything from grading to sorting to cutting to mining and uh, prospecting, which of course was probably thinking back, the prospecting part was definitely the most fun as a little kid, because basically you get to wander around in the middle of the bush and uh, it's just a big adventure for you at that at that age and you're sort of going off to pirate's treasure, right? So that was certainly the most entertaining aspect uh, when I think back. And then as you get older and your interests develop, uh, the rest of the industry became of interest as well. So definitely wasn't something that he forced on us. And my sister ended up uh, going a completely different route and she's not in the industry. But uh, I ended up being being in the uh, gem and mineral industry and mining industry. It sounds like you chose it. It wasn't chosen for you. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, even in university, when I went to actually got recruited to the U of A, I was the 100 meter sprinter at the U of A for five years. And when I went to the University of Arizona, of course, I discussed with my parents what my major would be. My father actually encouraged me to do something other than geology because I grew up with it my whole life. And I was a finance and marketing major, so a business major at the U of A. And I've actually found those tools extremely useful in my life as a businessman in the industry. And I think it was a very wise choice. And then I remember when I graduated university, my father said, well, why don't you do something outside of the gem industry to see what you think and see how you like it? And then if you like it, stick with it. If you don't, you can always come back whenever you want. So for two years after I graduated university, I actually worked in the financial services industry and decided after about two years of staring at a computer screen that that wasn't really what I wanted to do with my life. So then uh, thankfully, dad took me back and really the rest is history. (laughs) You'd rather be digging in the dirt, huh? Very much so. Rather be outside digging in the dirt any day than staring at a screen. It must be your passion. I mean, for you to have kind of explored other things and still come back to it, it sounds like your heart was really with the industry the whole time. Certainly so. And then as as I got older, I understood how important legacy was. I mean, I always, always had an idea of it and I was very proud of what my father did. But as I got older, and I really understood more and more about that legacy and what it takes to keep a legacy alive and going. I wouldn't say maybe a sense of duty, but I certainly feel a sense of pride with being in the industry and doing my best at least to carry on my father's dream. I think you should have pride. I think your name carries a lot of weight. You're very well known. Your father is very well known. And I come to understand it's a very interesting story how Savarite was discovered. It wasn't discovered originally in Kenya. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, a lot of people do think that Savarite was discovered in Kenya because it was named, uh, it is named after the Savo uh, National Park in Kenya, which is very close to where we mine. However, Savarite, my father's first discovery of Savarite is actually in Zimbabwe. And the first accredited discovery of Savarite that my father is accredited for is in 1967 in Tanzania. So 
both locales, obviously, outside of Kenya. Funny that it was sort of discovered in Tanzania. I guess you couldn't call it Tanzanite because Tanzanite had already been found at that time, right? Yeah, it's it's very interesting, actually. The link between Sovereign and Tanzanite is they're very closely linked and they're very closely linked in our, in our family history. Uh, so to give you a, a quick summary, Tanzanite was discovered in mid-1967 in the Marilani Hills of Tanzania. And that's still where Tanzanite is mined to this day. And, and uh, that would have been mid-67. And then my father actually discovered Savorite, uh just a few months later, about 13 kilometers outside of the village of Kamolo, Tanzania, which is northern Tanzania as well. And you have to remember when we're talking about Tanzania and Kenya here, these locations where these gems are found, they're all basically within a hundred mile radius of Mount Kilimanjaro. So it's something that, yes, you have Kenya and you have Tanzania, but obviously the geology is very similar within certain regions of the world. So geology doesn't necessarily follow strict uh, governmental borders. With that being the case, my father's discovery of Savrite in Tanzania came just a few short months. It was in late 1967. So they both were discovered in the first year. I mean, in the same year. And then going back to naming, Tanzanite had indeed been named uh, before Savrite had been named. So Tanzanite was already taken. What was Savrite called at first? So Savrite at first was just Green Grushlu Garnet. Oh. Yeah, no, nobody had seen a Green Grushlu Garnet in those colors before and or from that region in the world before. So it was a discovery of a brand new variety of garnet, but the name hadn't uh, hadn't been developed. And actually some years later, it took quite a few years later until 1973. So you had basically a six-year span where Savrite wasn't called Savrite. It was called Green Grosselo Garnet, which probably wasn't the most romantic. That's so funny. Yeah. Of course, for commercial reasons, they had to come up with a name. So if we go back to the sort of the origin and genesis and why I say they're so interlinked aside from being discovered in the same year. So if we go back to the history of Savrite, my father actually first came across his first samples of Savrite in 1961 when he was working for the, the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority on beryllium deposits in what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. And he decided to take a weekend out and uh, take a break and go and prospect in a range of hills that had a very unique geology that he found interesting. And when he drove to the base of this um, range of hills, he got out to go on his prospecting venture. And as he was making his way up the hill, a large rogue Cape Buffalo charged him out of the bush. And my father jumped into a nearby ravine. And thankfully, that ravine was in number one and number two, that it was too steep for the buffalo to get in after him. So my father then, seeing that the buffalo couldn't come in and get him, he, I guess, uh, had a little less trepidation about going on his trek. So my father made his way up the ravine prospecting, and the buffalo, being an ornery fellow, followed along the edge of the ravine for a wee bit, and then... I guess he got bored and he went on his merry way and my father kept kept prospecting at the bay, along the ravine and made his way up towards the crest of the hills and right before he came 
to the very top of the hill, he noticed the green glint in the sunlight. And when he went down to investigate, he saw these glinting green crystals that were quite unlike anything he had ever seen before. And he took those samples and looking at it, he could tell um, that, and keep in mind, my father, my father's father was a, um, had a doctorate in geology and was head of rant mines in South Africa, chief ge- geologist uh, for rant mines, etc. So my father actually had his first mine at six years old. He discovered an amethyst mine on the family plot. He was a very accomplished geologist. He got his geological degree from Wits University in South Africa. So looking at this sample, he realized that this was a green garnet and was a green unlike anything he had ever seen before. It certainly wasn't demantoid, and he was enthralled by it, but unfortunately he was moved off that location and never had a chance to further investigate. If we keep in mind that's 1961 in Zimbabwe, and it wasn't until 1967 that he was back in Tanzania. I say back in because my family originally started in what was Tanganyika. Tanganyika was the area of Tanzania prior to it being called Tanzania. Basically, what you had happen is you had the mainland Tanganyika. When it joined with Zanzibar, it became Tanzania. So that's how Tanzania came about. So if you look at the history of my family in Africa, we started in Tanganyika, then went down to Southern Africa, and then made our way back to East Africa, which my father did in the mid-1960s and isn't until 1967 that he actually is accredited with discovering sovereign because that was the locale in Tanzania he was able to develop into a mine and really sovereign mining occurred and that's an interesting story in and of itself and it lends itself to the previous discovery in 61 in Zimbabwe because my father was in Tanzania on Tanzanite actually at the time and Again, as I go back, Tanzanite and Sovereign extremely closely interlinked. And again, if we look at history, mid-1967, Tanzanite came out. My father was sold his first samples of Tanzanite, actually a sapphire. The, the vendor selling it to him claimed they were sapphire. My father obviously knew it wasn't sapphire. He suspected it was a blue zoocyte. And... Of course, there was no blue zoocyte in the world at the time. So my father took these samples over to the U.S. And when he took them over to the U.S., he took them to the Gemological Institute of America, so the GIA. And the chief scientist at the GIA said, well, we've never seen anything like this before. Let's run some tests. And uh, you you suspect that it's blue zoocyte, and let's, let's see if it is. So... They came back and they said, wow, these are the first samples we've ever seen, but this is indeed a blue zoocyte. And we suggest you take these over to Harry Platt at Tiffany & Company. And that was really the introduction to Tiffany & Company with my family and my, my father's relationship. And they said that Harry was a man that had great foresight and was always interested in new things. So based on that, my father got an appointment with Mr. Platt. And he, he met Harry and showed him these new finds from Africa. And keep in mind, Harry Platt was to become president of Tiffany & Company. So he wasn't president at that time, but he was, was to soon become president of Tiffany & Company. And Mr. Platt felt that it was fantastic material. And he said, well, Campbell, 
uh, let me know when you get back to Tanzania, if there's more material coming out, I would be extremely interested in it. You said there's not enough material here for Tiffany and Company to purchase, but why don't you take this to the American Museum of Natural History and show them, and also the Smithsonian and show them. So my father showed uh, the samples to the American Museum of Natural History, and uh, they acquired some samples, and he also showed samples to the Smithsonian, who also said they'd never seen anything like that before. And interestingly enough, with the Smithsonian, uh, my father was never that big into selling gems, but he loved to trade gems. So he actually traded the Smithsonian, their first samples of Tanzanite ever, for the Smithsonian's at the time, a sample of their tourmaline collection. So to this day, I have in the original box uh, the Smithsonian's tourmaline, well, samples from their tourmaline collection. And that's what was traded for the first samples of tanzanite that they ever received. To take you on this tangent, the reason why is because if you look at all these relationships that my father made on tanzanite, it was just a couple months later that my father in Tanzania saw a range of hills that had very similar geology to what he had seen in Zimbabwe those six years prior. And he said to himself, well, I never had a chance to further explore that range of hills in Zimbabwe or develop a mine or even prospect much more than the samples that he had discovered there. But he felt, let me go and prospect this range of hills that again is about 13 kilometers outside of the village of Kamolo and see if I can refine what I found in Zimbabwe those years prior. And then my father went and prospected in uh, just outside of the village of Kamolo and Lo and behold, he rediscovered what he had found in Zimbabwe. And that is where the first, his first sovereign mine developed and where all of the original sovereign that hit the world market came from. And it was a relationship that he made with Tanzanite, where as soon as he discovered sovereign in Tanzania, that he then took those samples immediately to Harry Platt at Tiffany and Company. And Harry Platt was enthralled with this new discovery. And he said, well, uh, Campbell, this gem is everything a fine gemstone should be. And then some, as it is considerably brighter than emerald, not treated in any way and far, far rarer with a purer green. And really, the rest is history, except for the fact that it didn't have a name. And so if you look at the timeline, here we are in late 67 that my father... Um, showed Tiffany and Company the first samples of Sovereign, and they acquired their first samples of Sovereign. And then Harry Platt was selling this material for several years. And finally, he came to my father and he said, well, Campbell, you know that I love this uh, green gemstone of yours, your discovery here of green Groschler garnet, but I'm having some trouble with some of my clients romanticizing the gem and selling this gem called Green Groschler Garnet. We really need to do something <laughs> with it, just like we did with Tanzanite, right? Because Harry Platt is the man credited for naming Tanzanite. And uh, obviously, Tanzanite did extraordinarily well. And then if you look back to any of the old history of Tiffany and Company and Tanzanite, they even utilized Elizabeth Taylor in a lot of their marketing, because if you remember, she had those gorgeous, just sort of violet bluish, uh, violety blue eyes as well. That's very similar to Tanzanite too, right? I mean, who would be a more 
perfect spoke, spokesperson than somebody like Elizabeth Taylor at the time. So all of that talent would have, would have been acquired through my father as he was the official consultant on Tanzanite in those days. So then Harry Platt told my father, well, you really need to think of something where uh, we really need to think of a name for this gem so that we can better market it. And uh, so Mr. Platt said to my father, well, Campbell, you discovered the stone. Uh, what would you like to name it? And interestingly enough, my mother actually had a name that she came up with and she had a, a slogan as well that she'd already already developed. And she said, well, I think the gem should be named Campbellite because it was discovered by my father and his first name is Campbell. And her slogan was, have a Campbellite by candlelight. Oh, I like that. So then uh, I remember when it was recounted to me, my father said, well, Harry and I weren't overly enthused with that name. If you knew my father was an extremely modest man and he would never name anything after himself. So my father thought for a while and Harry Platt said, well, Campbell, since you discovered the stone, is there anything you would like to name it after? And my father said, well, you know, whilst I discovered this gemstone in Tanzania, I had to leave Tanzania in 1970 when Julius Nyerere came to power and he nationalized the mines and he literally kicked us out of the country. So then my father had traced the strike of Green Grosslo Garnet from Tanzania into Kenya. So we moved to Kenya in 1970 when we had to leave Tanzania. And that's why I grew up in Kenya, number one. And number two, that is my father in late 1970 rediscovered, or in this case, discovered Savarite in Kenya for the first time as well. So first discovered Savarite unofficially 1961 in Zimbabwe. He discovered Savarite officially in 1967 in Tanzania. We had to leave Tanzania in 1970, and he traced the strike of Savarite from Tanzania into Kenya and discovered Savarite in Kenya in 1970. So with that timeline in your mind, this is 1973 that Harry Platt said that we, he really needed to come up with a name for it. So quite a few years have gone by. And my father said, since I had to leave Tanzania, Kenya is going to be my new home. And I've discovered Savard in Kenya at this point. And that's where my minds are. And that's where I'm going to raise my family and spend the rest of my life. So I would like to name this gemstone in honor of Kenya as opposed to Tanzania. So my father said, we mine very close to the same Savo National Park in Kenya, very famous for its uh, glorious wildlife and beautiful landscapes. And it's one of the best national parks for African wildlife in the world. And he said, therefore, since we're mining so close to this wonderful location, I would like to name Gringrashlo Garnet in honor of Savo. And mineralogical nomenclature at the time dictated that all and still does that all new discoveries have to end in ITE. So my father took Sava and simply added ITE on the end and you ended up with Sava right. The Germans at the time had a different idea and I'll see on a few stubborn gem reports every now from Idar Oberstein it still says Sava light because the Germans liked the idea. Wow. They accepted the fact that my father chose Savo, but 
the Germans liked light because, and it's not a bad, it's not a bad thinking either. I understand why, because sovereign is a very bright green gemstone. The Germans liked light because it was such a light gem and such a bright gemstone. But my father liked sovereign, and then that name was ratified by Sibjo and. Uh, Sovereign was born in 1973, and then Tiffany and Company came out with the first ad debuting Sovereign to the world in 1974, which I actually have hanging in my office here. But it's really quite a fascinating history to see how intertwined Sovereign and Tanzanite were. All the relationships my father built on Tanzanite really led to the birth of the market for Sovereign as well. And then, of course, uh, the naming behind Sovereign and the reasons behind that. And uh, really, as Sovereign, the name was born in 1973 and publicized in 74. The rest is history. Thank you, Bruce, for sharing about the history and nomenclature of Sovereign with us today. For everyone listening, you can catch the rest of this interview in part two, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen to the full interview on YouTube. 